Hello and welcome to a Meathead Hippie podcast. I am your host, Emily Schramm, and I just lit some white sage from Occidental California and I'm burning some incense and I'm just having a moment because today is the final day of 2022, which has been such a year and I know all of us are processing our own year and I hope more than anything just like I hope for myself that we are processing it with such love and such compassion all forgiveness needed (laughs) right there's so many times where I feel we are ready to move on to the next year the next thing the next goal and it's this kind of mechanism that keeps us from sitting in the feelings that we we want to get away from. So I've just been really into writing and processing the whole year. And instead of seeing it as negative or instead of that initial feeling of ick, leaning into it and just seeing the, the goodness that came from it, because there's always some goodness, and then just being radically proud of myself and radically supportive, because we cannot beat ourselves up into change. No matter what your New Year's resolution is, or how you're going to approach your New Year's, even though really the New Year's doesn't astrologically start until March and April, so everyone could be patient and slow down, please. <laughs> there is something really beautiful to changed the way we are by love and compassion, not by guilt and fear and driving ourselves into madness or, you know, kind of running away from ourselves, right? There's just such a beautiful potential for us to access change from a place of complete radical self-exploration. Like I I choose to explore this parts and these parts of me even more versus I have to change this because I'll be more lovable or more excited about my life if I do. So wherever you are, I hope you are just enjoying it and processing it in the best way. And just know that I do have a mini four point challenge that's free for all called the four dailies. It is now live for you to access and just jump in whenever you want, but I'm starting it tomorrow on the first and it's four points. So it's daily water, daily herbs, daily minerals, and daily peace. These four points are just really simple. It's drinking enough water. It's low key drinking tea instead of coffee, which is the hardest point. (laughs) So daily herbs actually means cutting coffee, but it also means just drinking more herbs and tea and tinctures and flower essences, and then making sure that you are taking your minerals, because I do believe strongly, like just how the world and the earth is really struggling with minerals, which is translated into our food and the deficiency in our food. We ourselves are mirroring that and magnesium being the number one, the number one need for our stability. I just keep thinking magnesium is stabilizing. So if we're looking for stability, what about adding magnesium in your life could actually provide that? And when you think of magnesium and its mechanisms to help relax, help sleep, help with ATP production and give more life force, also helping with D3 synthesis. You cannot have enough D3 or can't produce D3. That's a new podcast coming out soon. Just really powerful stuff about stabilizing. And then the final one, daily peace, which is 10 minutes of meditating. So I think it's the perfect little January challenge because it's not about really intense goal setting. It's about 
stabilizing our foundation. So that's all available. The four dailies, just take a look, sign up for it anywhere you are on my newsletter or on my Instagram in the links below. I think you'll really enjoy it. And today's interview is just so important because I'm learning right alongside with you. This is the real organic project. And this is just like mind-blowing because you always feel like, okay, if it's organic, then it's good. But then there's this plot twist of actually the bigger organic gets for consumers, the more consumers ask for it, then of course the rules are going to change. And I was talking about this with my friend Sydney like if, if Starbucks went all organic and all of their coffee was pesticide free, because coffee does make me nauseous. And I think it's because of how many, how many chemicals are used in non-organic coffee. But at the same time, like would, if Starbucks said, okay, we're going to go organic, would they actually hit the standards of organic or would the standards change? Because they're so big. <laughs> and that's kind of what's happening. The standards changed. And today, Lynn Lee, the co-director of The Real Organic Project, is here to teach me and you all about the history of the organic certification. And then in turn, this Real Organic Project movement, which is a grassroots farmer-led movement. And it has all of this amazing support for farmers to distinguish soil grown and pasture raised products because the organic certification now allows non soil grown and non pasture raised products to be organic. So we talk all about that, including hydroponics, which I finally am wrapping my head around where it's just like, Oh my God, when we think about something growing in the soil and building that adaptability and resilience and you know, being in nature and kind of creating those compounds because it's surviving, that's the life force energy that we get to consume. And that's a really powerful thing to keep instead of these commercial plots grown and pumped with a lot of inputs and just completely taking the human out of it. That's, that's not organic and it shouldn't be organic. So really excited for you to learn right alongside with me, learn so much please let me know what you think. And then I will be attending the Real Organic Project pre-conference in Monterey. So I'll have all of that information linked. If you're interested in this, you can attend live in person or you can attend online. And it's got a huge list of TED Talk style speakers teaching us about this type of work. And I feel like it's so important for us to just be exposed to all the types of languages. I'm getting excited. I keep hitting things with my hands. All the types of languages um, that is around food and how we receive food. It's the most important thing that we can understand right now. And I, I hope that this podcast brings some wisdom to your day to day so that we can all be better consumers and also ask better questions. Okay, without further ado, here is Lindley from The Real Organic Project. <laughs> I'm Emily Schramm, the ultimate meathead hippie. Welcome to the show. Today, this is a huge day, Lindley, because I've been waiting to get this van licensed. I had to get it licensed in Colorado, but it's so cold. Like yeah. living in a van in Colorado is not the best scenario. <laughs> <laughs> but this we, morning go ahead oh no you story. have you done van life 
No, it's just we loaded up because we're visiting family in Minnesota from Durango, Colorado, and we loaded the car up and then it didn't start. And we had like two dogs, like fully loaded with like skis and we were just ready to go for the holidays. <laughs> it was too cold. It just the oh car wouldn't God. budge. <laughs> well, Lindley, that's where I'm at. I'm in Durango. No way. Yeah, that's where I'm from. This is so cool. Okay. So I'm sorry. I'm not there. I am too, but you must be the reason. So I went to a coffee shop and I walked in and I looked at the board and it was said the real organic project. And I was like, I have to know what this is. And so this Which is coffee how, shop had it. So it was the coffee shop that was, um, right next to, they have a bakery right next door to it. It's connected to a bakery. It's at 81301 and it's yes. connected to La Patisserie or whatever. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Great. Yes. And they had matcha, which is always like, you know, matcha oh, and man. green tea. If I were there, I'd just have you stay at my farm if you're cold. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, okay. Well, I would love My to brother's know. holding down the fort there. Honestly, if you're cold, there's like, he's staying in my house. He would welcome you. <laughs> That's so sweet. Well, I love Durango. I've just been so like the amount of goodness here, which is, I guess, why you're here. This yeah. is, that's, what are the odds? That's so crazy. Wow. That is like, it, the, I like never leave home crazy. too. Oh my God. And <laughs> this is why it's so crazy is because, because I've been trying to chase down this registration to get my vehicle registered. It was lost in the mail by USPS for two months. I mean, it's uh -huh. just been, and the closest I was in New Mexico and Arizona, and the closest DMV was Durango. So right. I just came up That's to Durango. That's amazing. We have like a DMV and an airport and yet there's no major highways that go through it. So we really don't have a population very much. So I love it. It's like a great mix. It's a little inconvenient to fly out of it because it's a small airport. And so it's a little pricey, but like it's, I would take the isolation that that brings, you know, over having the convenience of a big highway and stuff. It's the perfect mix of small town and stuff is happening, you know? Yeah. Like some of the coffee shops, I'm like, where am I? And then the restaurants, I was like, this has got. Yeah. There's good food. Good. Really there's a good, good food scene. Yeah. You should just free. not leave. Don't leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly I'm supposed to come back. Okay. Well, can you tell me about your farm and what sure. you have here in Durango? Sure. Yeah. So I have, are we, are we starting? Like, should I just let's, go yeah, dive let's right go into for it? it. Okay. Yes. Let's go for it. <laughs> we started Adobe house farm 13 years ago. This is my husband and I, and we moved out to Durango cold Turkey. My parents were retiring there and we were, I, we were working in the East coast. I was from the East coast. My husband's from Minnesota and he was teaching high school and I had a great job with the USDA doing research and we had my first daughter and I thought, I don't want her to grow up in the city. I've always wanted to have a family on a farm. Well, that was probably the stupidest mistake we've ever made is starting like having a child and starting a farm business with no farm in the family. So we moved out to Durango and there's no water out there. Mm -hmm. And if you do have water, it's very, very expensive. So properties with real farm properties with water usually get turned into developments out there. And so mm -hmm. our family friend said, you know, we looked everywhere to try to find a farm and the water runs out. It says water rights. And then you look a little further and it's like, oh, but they, the water stops in June. You know, it's like you get the mm. snow runoff, but it, so it wasn't real water rights. So we just realized we couldn't get started unless um, we worked with others who had land. So a family friend who has an Adobe house said, why don't you just start farming in my front yard? And this was kind of right in town and it had a little bit of um, like uh, city water and a, and a little pond. 
well, the city water bills for our veggie farm, you know, they got up to like 200 bucks a month. And at the time that was just like, we cannot, this doesn't work financially right. sustainably to water and kind of grow the farm. So we had a 12 member CSA that year. We were tiny. It was like a third of an acre on this friend's front yard. And it just kind of ballooned from there. The second year, a CSA member said, well, I have an acre. And then the third year, we rented a plot with two acres right off of 32nd Street in town and had an on-farm CSA pickup. We had over 100 members coming to the farm right in town. Uh, you know, it was just a dream come true because we didn't have the infrastructure to have like coolers and, you know, to plastic wrap everything and all that stuff. So there was no infrastructure there. So we essentially just grew the vegetables that had real soil, real water rights. And we literally were harvesting them as the customers were arriving for like this four hour window of CSA pickup. And then if they wanted more, we just, you know, we were like the kale's out there, go get some extra bundles. And, you know, we had some you pick strawberries. It, it was perfect, but um, that plot was up for sale. And we realized we really wanted to do this and needed to build some of that infrastructure. And so um, we decided we had to, to purchase land if we wanted to do this for the long haul that I wasn't really willing to rent, which is, you know, kind of a, I would say it's, it's not um, really even possible in some areas of the country. Like you're from California and it's like, you need to get over that desire to own your own land. It's so expensive. And really where we were too, anywhere out West, water rights just really make it almost impossible. So a little naively, we just said, we're not gonna do this unless we can own the land, but we put it out into the universe and the town was really supportive of our effort to, to try to actually own our land. Cause we had started so many different plots and you know the land tenure really just, we couldn't get like a 10 year lease or a longer term lease on anything. And we couldn't really build like right now we have like a year round greenhouse, three high tunnels, um, like a big barn with walk-in cooler. And so all of that was um, really not possible on rented land, even, even long-term rented land. That Those relationships, I really admire people who try to make it work, but it rarely does work where the landowner is very giving, but uh, you know the farmers invest so much in trying to make both of those things work out for both the landowner and the farmers, I feel like it's kind of rare. Uh, it's something we need to work on as a movement. Um, but we put it out there and there, there was a family who wanted to keep farmers on their land and they let us rent it while we applied for a, an FSA loan, which had low interest. Um, and I got an off-farm job and my brother and my husband are still working the farm and we've been able to make it work. So 13 years later, we actually own some farmland just north of town. So it's really close wow. to where we were farming and where we sell all our produce in Durango. So it's a very um, happy success story and a movement where I feel like so many farm farmers, they want to do it. Um, and like uh, the stats are bad. It's like one in 30 farms actually make it, you know, and it's usually things like land uh, tenure, uh, even if, if land is in the family, it's getting loans for your businesses, you know, it's, I know it, small businesses in general don't have great success rate, but small farms even more so uh, really fail. So we feel very, you know, just happy that the community kind of came together and wanted to keep us there. We feel very lucky. And it's so amazing. I'm probably a few miles away from you. 
keep from you. That's I know. So cool. We're going to try to keep you. A lot of people don't leave town. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. And then kind of this topic of today. So this is how you got into the Real Organic Project. So yeah, I would love to just jump into maybe were you a part of its original kind of fruition and establishment and um because you've been in this for 13 years you've seen this change of organic so firsthand so for somebody new if the listeners new to what organic means kind of like breaking that down into the basics of like why the real organic project exists would just be so wonderful to understand so when I started looking for that off-farm job, I started working for a group, it was a nonprofit called the Cornucopia Institute, and they went to the National Organic Standards Board meetings to lobby to ensure that the organic standards stayed strong. And that's where I learned about the Organic Foods Production Act and what a really good law it was. I mean, the organic farmers in the late 80s really came together and said, there's a lot of fraud under the word organic, we need your help government. But we're nervous handing this movement, really essentially a movement over to a government entity that had not been supportive of organic at all. If anything, they discredited, discredited it. <laughs> so we would go to these meetings and there would be lobbyists to get synthetics added to that national list of what was allowed in organic, usually from the industry, the organic, or not the organic industry, actually. Um, the food industry. And then you had a lot of nonprofits that really represented eaters that were fighting to keep those new um, additives, either food additives or additives in the farming practices allowed in organic. So it was really this kind of battle in front of what's called the National Organic Standards Board meeting, which was appointed by the government, um, appoints these leaders. But you had to have the farmers fought during the Organic Foods Production Act, the passing of that to keep this standards board very representative of the movement. So you had to make sure there were certifiers, a certain number of farmers, um, and so that the industry reps, I think there were only two or three that were allowed from the industry so that they were really a minority. And what was happening at the time is what was being certified, like allowed as organic. And even that board, they were putting more and more industry reps as farmers. And so that farmer representation was really getting lost. And when a vote came up about whether or not hydroponics should be allowed as organic, for the first time at these meetings, all these farmers started showing up saying, wait a second, I think you've misunderstood that organic isn't about this list of what you're allowed to use either on the farm or in the food. Organic is about so much more. It's about soil health. And that's what allows you to really minimize any inputs because if you have biodiversity and if you have soil health, then you really don't need to use these additives. These, this list is just here, not to base your whole system around needing it routinely. It's, you know, in case there's this rare outbreak of something and you, you need it, um, but it's not, it's not, it's really not meant to be the whole production system. So it was really surprising to see all of these farmers showing up to the meetings because I was used to just seeing in the industry reps and, and I kind of, like, I felt like I was part of them, you know, I really wanted to be part of their movement, because I didn't really feel like a nonprofit advocate, and I didn't feel like an industry rep. So I was always trying to kind of find my place there. And it's, it's, you know, pretty rare to get a farmer off the farm and to find money to actually show up to these meetings. And because this issue was so just not only um, so important for what organic is, it was also uh, 
I feel like it, it really was a turning point. There were so many problems already in the organic industry and you don't want to drive the customers away from organic by being too loud about them. But I think when it came down to this one, they said, you know, this is one that we really need to be loud about and it's worth fighting for and standing up for because it is so central to the core of what organic is. And when they lost that vote, you know, so the NOSB was split. It was like eight members uh, said no and seven said uh, yes. And, and the, the vote is a little bit um, complicated. It was trying to limit the amount of fertility that you could use when you were in a container system. And the hydroponic lobby wanted to make it 100% of fertility comes through liquid, liquid. And there was a compromise that was put forward that the farmers essentially supported because they knew that they couldn't really get in the ground growing, which is what they wanted, so that you could get your fertility from cover crops and compost. But it was really just to limit that amount of fertility so that essentially you couldn't have a pure hydroponic system. And they lost that vote and they said, okay, we've lost organic. Um, but we've basically built this $60 billion industry on our backs. We're not just going to hand it over on a silver platter to the people that stole it from us. Essentially, we need to come back together as a movement, you know, like we did 20 years ago and, um, you know, tell everybody, tell the world what it is we do. So that's where the Real Organic Project started. And it, that was in 2017, although the five years kind of leading up to that vote in 2017, the movement was really building. We called it Keep the Soil and Organic at the time. And it, it, we had like a bunch of rallies around the country to kind of just raise awareness about what was happening at the National Organic Standards Board and to get the farmers back together and a little bit more political because really they had thought, oh, we did it. You know, we, we established these organic standards. We can go back and farm and just, you know, it's taken care of. The government's got this. And so it was about five years of the community kind of waking up and saying, oh, I guess the government doesn't have it. And there were a bunch of other issues that were, were you know, more than the hydroponic issue. There was trouble with grazing uh, in dairy. Um, there were troubles with uh, imports of, of grain that were not organic. So there was a lot of grain fraud, both domestically and internationally. Uh, and so I think it, these were like front page Washington Post stories too. So I think it was a time that was exciting because the farmers were getting involved again, a reawakening of the movement. But um, it was also a scary time to like come forward and say, you know, my, my whole business depends on this word organic having integrity in the marketplace. And you had to stand up and say that there were problems. And a lot of people were really uncomfortable with that um, because the first thing that people do is say, well, that's, I'm not going to pay more for that, you know? So you didn't want to lose your customers either. And meanwhile, you know, over 99% of the organic farmers in the country were doing things right. It was just that there was this small minority of really big mega industrial sized farms that were making their way in um, and, and really ruining the word organic for all these uh, farmers who had kind of built their lives on building this word up. And it's not a cheap, certification to obtain no. for, a, yeah. for, you know, kind of, will you explain maybe like certified organic, that process is a, quite a barrier for many farmers too, just because of what yeah. it entails and the, the cost of it. It's very cost prohibitive for small micro farms. Yeah. I had this weird phase of about five years when I was on rented land, building my farm business where it didn't really make sense for me to get certified organic because um, there's a three-year transition and I was renting so many different plots, um, some of which I had um, 
you know, I couldn't have certified organic right away. So I'm a real believer in, and actually even there's the IFOAM is the international, um, let's see if I can get it right. International farming, organic. Um, oh gosh, I got to look it up. IFOAM is the international organic movement. And it has always said you're an organic farmer, but it's a continuum and it's a continuum of continuous improvement. So you might not be at the point where you can get certified yet, but you're still farming organically and you're working towards that certification. And then once you get certified, you still need to continue to improve in other ways because all of us are, are in this for more than just good food. We believe that it's environmentally responsible. And so, you know, maybe this year you're going to put some solar panels in or, or maybe this year you can really raise your workers' wages so that, you know, you feel like they've got a living wage now. And, and the idea is that you're just it's not a, a, stop, a stopping point. That's that's kind of what the problem with the USDA was, was that you really, there was no incentive to move beyond that in the marketplace. And in Europe, all of those farmer-led certification bodies, when the EU formed their organic regulations, they kept going. And they have all these add-ons. They're called add-on certifications. And these are 40 years old, even before EU organic. And so I think that was a big mistake that the farmers have learned now, um, and that's why they've created an add-on in the Real Organic Project, is that we, we should have just kept getting together and, and pushing the standards higher, even though the USDA kind of had that baseline standard for us. The crescendo, that's a good visual, because yeah. it is, it, it is about the give back and the, the production, of course, is valuable to you as a farmer, but none of it matters if it's not actually in benefit long-term so that it's sustainable right. for the farmer or for what you said, the land, like this has to be a long-term thought. And, and so I guess kind of coming back to some of like baseline layman's terms of hydroponics. So Mm. hydroponics and what that means and how kind of digging back to the story of what you just said of like how that was where people start to really show up for it. What would be helpful for someone to understand if they're new to that term hydroponics and how that would be different than kind of some of these what we're talking about, the real organic um, movement, or what would make it important to differentiate from? Yeah, you use that word sustainable, which I think over time has been a little, you know, co-opted. But at the same time, I think we all understand what, you know, the kind of the best version of it means. And I think there's in farming, there's just this continuum. It's not like there's this line, like once you're over it, now you're a sustainable farm. And, um, you know, we need to kind of acknowledge, you know, this whole idea of continuous improvement and just, just keep getting better and better as farmers. Cause you know, when I first got started, it was like, you could barely keep your head above the water. And so you, you don't really expect the farms to be fully sustainable from the beginning, but this idea that you keep improving. So I would put hydroponics at like this extreme end of, um, everything that it takes to grow that produce comes from off the farm. And if you think about sustainability in terms of like, I'm not going to shop for that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to buy used, right? Because everything has this carbon footprint affiliated with it. And if you buy new, it's got a much bigger carbon footprint than if you buy something that's already produced. So the same thing in farming, it's like, if I'm going to recycle, you know, all of these nutrients that are available in my local community, and that's what a lot of organic farmers do when they use compost is they're, they're, you know, they're not, getting forage fish from the sea and making compost they're they're using if if you're trying to do it in the most sustainable way they're using all the leftover scraps from the brewing beer and you know the restaurants and 
um, you know, from your pack house. So that's kind of the compost side of it, but you're also growing fertility in the form of cover crops. So that is an on-farm. That's one of the most sustainable ways to, to grow your own fertility. And so hydroponics is just this extreme where it's like, I'm going to buy all of our inputs and, and some of the organically approved inputs actually have a, a worse carbon footprint than the conventional fertilizers, which is insane if you know anything about how you make fertilizers through the Haber-Bosch process, which is, which is just the chemical um, fertilizers that the conventional farmers use. It's very energy intensive, but organic fertilizers, they take, and it doesn't even have to be organic soy, they'll, they'll take soybeans uh, conventional soybeans, and they do something called hydrolysis to them so that it's considered organic because it's like a naturally occurring uh, fertility because it comes from a soybean. But then the, we use this really energy intensive and, and a lot of different chemicals to kind of break down the soybean and make it so that it's readily available to the plant. So um, that soy hydrolysate is actually a really commonly used hydroponic inorganic uh, fertilizer. Um, but I mentioned the fish uh, meal too. I mean, they're out there catching um, fish for, for organic fertilizers. And uh, it just seems like if we're really going to be real with ourselves and talk about sustainability, uh, we need to be looking at things that aren't in the Organic Foods Production Act and deciding whether or not, you know, this is actually a, a sustainable system or not. And so I think that idea of continuous improvement needs to it needs to be farmer-led too, because I feel like all these organic farmers built it in the first place. And they also understand how these production practices have been passed down and what they've been doing that works for 40 years. So when new people are coming in and saying, oh, look, we can have really high yields and let's just replace this chemical fertilizer with something that we can lobby to get on the national list as organic, you know, you've completely lost the whole spirit of this movement in the first place. And I think organic farmers, and especially with the like the no-till movement that's kind of come out of the regenerative, is, is completely off base. If you're an organic farmer, you understand that you're growing your own fertility on your farm through cover crops. And the only way to do this no-till is to herbicide down those cover crops and then direct till. That's what no-till is now. And so to take an organic farmer and say, you must be no-till if you want to be regenerative right now, it's like, wait a second, we're, we're growing all our own fertility. We flail mow, these cover, flail mow these cover crops down. We till them under, and that is our slow-release fertility so that we're not contaminating your waterways. So when these other movements come in and they're not farmer-led, they're well-intentioned, but they're not farmer-led, sometimes we get really off track. And so that's why I just, I really believe in this movement because organic farmers understand what it takes and, and we've, organic farming is, you know, before it was called organic, it's thousands of years old. And so we know what these techniques are and they've, they've been passed down for, for a long time. And I just feel like it's, it's time to kind of stand up for them because there's so much confusion out there for, for what organic means, what better farming is. I think our um, conversations are, are getting going in the wrong direction on the wrong focus sometimes when we're talking right. about sustainability. So it's really important for organic farmers to kind of step up and say, no, what we're doing works. And uh, we, we need to make sure we're communicating that to the eaters so that they can support the right thing too. And the government, the government just uh, gave away $3 billion to climate smart farming and it went to conventional no-till, which I is insane. That. I, I mean, but they, they were able, able to lobby for that to be you know, what is considered as climate smart. And uh, so, so organic farming isn't even, you know, 
being considered, uh, you know, for, for climate, for the future, uh, for the government. It's like, of course it isn't, <laughs> you know, wow. they've never supported us there anyway. Wow. So, so this... we have our battles ahead of us. Right. And well, it's it, what you said is about the consumer confusion is so real, right? Like, yes. yep. I think the the thing that has stood the longest is the dirty dozen, right? From like mm. my kind of background, yeah. of like, yeah. we know the dirty dozen. And that's been around for at least 10 years of like, okay, these are the ones to get organic. Always. But outside of that, yeah. there's no language of really what in and then the more we talk about what's organic and what's not, and then certifications and certifications being too expensive and cost prohibitive. It's like, then how do you know? And so I think, you know, kind of that entry point of like, how does a consumer at a grocery store already confused, already, you know, on a budget (laughs) and already like really just wanting the best for family, what, what exists, which is why I feel like the real organic project, I was so excited about it, just digging into your resources and seeing what you guys offer, because it is, it feels like it's for the people and of the people. (laughs) And so necessary right now, like you said, the, the people who are getting certified organic, the, the businesses, kind of the industrial side of it, they are so good at fooling everyone. And they pretend to be like a small farm on all their packaging. And they pretend to be grazing their animals. And it's like, if you oh, dive yeah, a little add, bit deeper. They <laughs> add like little notes from the hens, you know, that right, just like, right. It, they're, yes. they're better at being us than we are. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, it's true. So then what would be a good, um, And this kind of goes back to like how excited I am about your conference that is in January in Monterey and how it is about kind of the gathering of people and voices and experiences of just learning and connecting. But when a consumer is so confused or doesn't know what, what is right and what is wrong, what, is there a baseline and is that why this kind of food stamp exists or what does exist that you love or that you do feel is solid for a consumer to really feel is a reliable database or resource? You know, is there anything that we can say to people listening of like, this is foolproof or does the, is that why the real organic exists? Well, if you look in my cupboard right now, you know, I, I just mostly grow tomatoes and some extra vegetables. So I, I have to do a lot of shopping myself. It's all organic. So I always start with that. It's always better than the chemical food. But unfortunately, that's not enough anymore. And uh, there are certain products that you know are most likely going to be um, problematic. So eggs, if they're organic eggs, um, the they've been able, the industry's been able to lobby for the huge CAFO chicken barns to for the outdoor access to actually be this tiny concrete porch. And because, and we've known this is a problem in the organic uh, movement for a long time, but because we stayed silent about it, it, it pretty much became, you know, it's over 80% of the eggs on the shelf. I would say it's even higher now, but I don't know that for sure. Um, but it was in 2017, the leader of the National Organic Program, Miles McAvoy said over 75% of the eggs in the market right now have, you know, these chicken porches considered as outdoor access. It's only gotten worse since then. So I imagine it's even higher. So eggs are problematic. Dairy, the enforcement of the grazing standard has been a really big problem. So that's another one. Um, you just have to kind of do your research and figure out, you know, if you don't know the farms that are producing, you can't write the company. If you write Driscoll's right now and you ask them if they grow blueberries hydroponically, even though the vast majority of their organic blueberries are grown hydroponically, they say no. We don't grow hydroponically, we grow in containers. 
even though 100% of the fertility is coming from liquid feed. So they just outright lie about it because there's no farm, like legal definition for what hydroponic is. Um, so unfortunately, just emailing the company about it tends to not be very effective. Um, and you know, over time, we're we're a young movement. Real organic could get co-opted at some point. But if you always look at who's behind the label, who's bringing you this label, um, I always feel like that's safer. There was a really great fair trade movement in uh, Fair Trade International, and that still exists. And it got co-opted. There's a Fair Trade USA. The two labels look almost identical. Um, I was you. You all should do your homework right now and look up Fair Trade USA and Fair Trade International. Fair Trade USA is the industry copy of, of a really authentic fair trade movement called Fair Trade um, International. And take a look at the difference in the labels and learn to like support Fair Trade International instead. So it's, it's unfortunately we're at this time when you just have to educate yourself a little more. And I, I there aren't a lot of groups doing a really good job at this. It's actually really upsetting to me that the farmers are the ones that have to come together and be really loud. I would think that there would be a lot of academics and um, you know, my background in academia, I'm actually not surprised about that. It, the, that um, community doesn't really um, incentivize or support the idea of being kind of an activist. You know, you publish your papers, no one reads them, you stay quiet in your lab, that type of thing. So. Um, I think the climate scientists are getting a little bit louder, but I, right. I think, yeah, that, I think that's what the idea behind the EcoFarm conference is, is we've got like Alan Lewis gives an incredible talk. He has a TED talk that everybody can watch to see what they're in for, but it talks about the co-opting of food and he calls it the easy button. He says that, you know, essentially if you have a retail grocery store in order to be competitive, there's so much consolidation in the industry that now there's only one or two distributors. They have a list. And you basically have to work with their list of suppliers. And, and that's what makes it so easy. I mean, all their employers are underpaid. So you've got like these college kids coming in and, you know, trying to fill the shelves and the high turnover in that job. And the easy button is just to order what's on that, you know, that list. And they have this program called SPIN, which AI, I think we think, oh yeah, AI is just going to figure all this out for us. But I think it's kind of like Facebook. We're all starting to realize this where, you know, it just like, once you go down a rabbit hole, it like you're amplifies, stuck. you're stuck in the bubble, you're <laughs> yeah. in the bubble and you think it's your only world. And it, it yes, right. totally. So <laughs> yeah, if you've got a brand and you made it on that list and then automatically that spin program is going to, you know, tell the next buyer that this is the brand to buy. And that's how you get the shelf space. So I think we have a lot of uh, ethical issues to talk about when the world is kind of being run by all these algorithms and things. And, and the small farmers have really lost out in what, you know, you were talking about the, the California organic movement, a lot of what, you know, our small farms out there, hundred acre farms, they were able to get shelf space and really, you know, build the brand uh, over the last 20 years. And these are the farms that are, are losing it now. And a lot of those kind of mid-scale farms are the farmers that are part of the Real Organic Project now because they're seeing the changes in the marketplace. Really the direct market farmers, it's great if you get certified organic because, you know, you've got your customer base can, can feel better about it, but you, you're fine without it because you can always talk directly to your customer, you know, but the second, our farm has even grown beyond that, where we do want to get some shelf space. We're specializing in tomatoes now. Um, we figured out what we're good at. And 
we're already at the point where we're beyond, and we just have a couple of acres of veggies. We're beyond that direct market relationship. So of course you're an organic farmer if you're just direct marketing, even if you don't get certified. But I think, you know, this movement is really for communicating in, you know, 99% of the food is over that is sold at the grocery store, you know, off these distributors through restaurants and stuff. You think about how much food you actually purchase at the farmer's markets where you know your farmer. It's a very small percentage. So and I think our movement's kind of stuck there um, where there's only so many CSA subscriptions in a community that will sell. There's only so many farms that can come to market and not go home with all their produce at farmer's market. We really need to, if we're going to go beyond that 99.9% .9 of food, you know, that's it, and to kind of dive into that, I think, I think we really need to start talking about what's on the grocery store shelves. And that's, that's yeah. where the real organic project label can help. Wow. And what you said was so important too, of like, it's the farmers leading this movement, which is such a shame because you're feeding us and we are dependent the whole, we all are dependent on what, on food, you know, kind of coming back to the root of, if we know our farmer, where it comes from, we have that relationship. You live in Durango, which I am so, so fun. I'm here there's certain cities and certain populations and certain places that make that more accessible. Do you feel like Durango is one of those places is awareness of localization, you know, a big part of this conversation, because that is a way to really direct and support the farmers that are going out of business. How is there, you know, that type of tie-in where I, I just feel frustratingly, like, how do I speak about, we all depend on food. Food is, the foundation of our entire society has been built on how food has created pockets of places for people to be at and live and survive. And yet we don't even acknowledge the farmer. And so if farmers are struggling, which they clearly are, you know, what, what does a consumer need to understand about that? And is it just more localization or is it pushing your grocery store to be more local or your restaurants to carry more local, like what is the advocacy that can happen at a consumer level, if any? Mm. I don't know if, you know, does that exist? Oh, there's so it... much. <laughs> yes, good. There was a big, I don't know if you know Tractor Cade, I've only learned about it recently and studying the food system, but it, you know, it happened in the, either in the early eighties, late seventies, something like that, where all the farmers were losing their small farms, you know, the get bigger, get out policy by the government. And, uh, you know, the Earl Butts era, and they, they brought their trackers, tractors to Washington and like dump manure on, you know, the, the Senate, whatever. Um, I don't, I don't know all the details, but it's called tractor Kate. So look it up. And all that farmer activism didn't really result in change. You know, it continued on, um, the, the loss of the small farms across America, this wasn't even under organic. And I think what was missing was like the eaters, it can't just be a farmer led movement. It's not going to be effective. Um, and I think we need to go beyond the, you know, of course you eat three times a day, you know, make good choices. Of course, that's important to ask your restaurants, you know, what is local? There's so much greenwashing there. You know, this is a farm to table restaurant and they token buy or whatever. Um, there's very little oversight. So I like to say, you know, what farm did you get this lettuce from? And then like in a small enough community like Durango, even in the larger communities, you can 
talk to the farmer, you know, are you producing lettuce right now? Do they really purchase from you? Um, or did they just do it one or two times and then they're saying they're local? So I think there's a lot of that work that we can do as eaters. Um, but I think politically, like I said, this 2.8 billion was just a start for climate smart, what they're calling climate smart. And that's an industry term because they didn't want it to go to organic farming. Um, that's just the beginning of, of the government uh, supporting climate change in agriculture. And it's going to the wrong type of farming. I mean, we are so delusional if we think this is going to get out of, you know, out of the climate crisis that we're in and that it's really sequestering carbon. Um, the companies that are calling themselves regenerative and climate smart, um, their input companies. So when I was talking about, you know, reducing inputs, that that's the core of what really good farming is, is actually growing your own fertility um, or harvesting it locally. If you've got Syngenta and Bayer Monsanto, and these are the companies that are getting the climate smart money, they're selling you stuff. They're selling inputs. They would have to put themselves out of business in order to be uh, climate smart. So I know that what they're trying to say is, well, these are the worst polluters, so we need to improve there. But we're funding the worst polluters as our solution. You got to be kidding me. Like, that's what we're doing right now. So I think wow. politically, we have a huge uphill battle. We think the solution is going to come from the people that brought us the problem. Yeah, no we're fiddling way. while Rome burns. Well, I was just thinking about the, cause the farm bill is about to come up, right? Mm -hmm. So d does that mean you feel with climate smart, maybe being a precursor of like what the farm bill is about to tap into, or is there yeah. more, is there optimism <laughs> in any way of movement in the right direction? Or is it still like, no, we, we still have to grassroots this. You know, we're still funding commodities through the farm bill. That's, that's really what we're enabling to continue on. Some of the farmers are just like, if we just could compete the organic farmers with the, the chemical farms on an even playing field without any of these subsidies, we would win because over time here, these inputs are becoming really expensive. We just want to compete on an even playing field. And this is the food. It's, it's going to be organic food, but it's always been so subsidized even before you put a seed in the ground. You know, you've got checks and, and the crop subsidies. Um, I'm sorry, the crop insurance. You, you don't even get insured unless you're farming a certain way, not organically. So you can't get insurance either. So it's just, it's madness. <laughs> it needs yeah. to change. <laughs> oh, which is, so tell me about your event in January, this event, what you are most excited about personally and kind of the gathering of people and just, you know, the the hope for it, like the outcome, what is the intention for this event and how can people learn about it? Cause I am definitely going to be there in my well, van the with my cat. Thing is it's in, in person and it's also live stream. So anybody can join us and it's just going to be from farmers and quite an education on the food system. And these are farmers that have been working to change the food system um, for it's been their life's work. Um, and then we've got Paul Hawken as our keynote, who is really seeing agriculture as a solution to climate change. You know, he wrote um, Drawdown and he's got Project Drawdown and his is his nonprofit. And he really sees Real Organic Project as, as that agricultural solution to solving climate change. So he's going to give a keynote in the morning and then be on stage with Dave and me, who is my co-director, um, 
to, to talk this out about how the farmers can really um, come along with the eaters, uh, you know, through the Real Organic Project, through this add-on certification label to really go right to the marketplace so that eaters can just make good decisions. And so I just think it's going to be a day of education. Like I was saying, it's so confusing out there. And the last thing you want to do is just abandon it all and just go back to the chemical food system. We've got to come together and provide solutions, even though there is a lot of uh, kind of grim statements that I've made today that make us feel like we, we're throwing our hands up and, and need to abandon it all. That's the last thing we should do. We just got to, we got to, we've got our work cut out for us. We got to go get educated. And that's what that day is all about. That's so good. And then if a farmer is listening or is growing or is getting into farming, how can they be a part of this, this label? What is the process and kind of website URL or application that is required of being a part of the movement in a more, I am a farmer way? Yeah. If you're just getting started farming, I would say just start listening to our podcast. It's a lot of farmers. So you can really feel like you're part of the movement, understand all the issues and know that you are an organic farmer, even if you're not getting certified, really embrace all these real organic principles of moving your animals on livestock, uh, livestock on pasture, um, healthy soils. You know, how, how do we do this? What are the production practices? And we interview a lot of farmers and then politically, you know, what are the issues that you should be talking to your customers about so they can support you and believe in your food and, and spread the movement to their friends. That's so important. I think we provide farmers with a lot of the talking points and the language to really help our farms thrive and help this movement grow. And then, um, yeah, I mean, when you're ready, get your farm certified because it's actually, we have a lot of farmer to farmer exchange. I actually became a better farmer by working with another uh, farmer in the program. And so we, if you have any questions, we, we hook you up with really experienced farmers that you know, are in, you know, growing the same kind of food that you are doing the same things that you're doing. So you've got a community to support you. I felt really alone in all this. Um, I feel like, you know, overcoming that land access barrier was a big one, but then how, how do I get good at this? You know, and I think that's where the Real Organic Project can really help. And then of course, then you can use our marketing label, which will help you get some shelf space. And it's really beautiful and catchy and it caught, I mean, the one more serendipity, not like this hasn't been serendipitous enough with our whole Durango, but I was so excited because as soon as I signed up for the newsletter and was looking at, okay, how do I get involved in this event? And like, oh, wait, I'm actually going to be on my way. Like this is on the path. So I clearly, yeah, it was perfect, but I was so cool. You guys sent an email out with Francis of Radiance Dairy. And this is just like a full circle moment. My first, I just got this van a few months ago and my first podcast was at Radiance Dairy. No and way. I had, yes. Can, what were you met, doing there? So Francis <laughs> was like the first person to see my van. <laughs> it was like, I just had met him. And then all of a sudden he's in your email newsletter. I was like, oh my God, this is too cool. But Gabby, who has worked from, uh, you know, she was born and raised in Fairfield, Iowa on the farm. She helps with their um, production and management and, you know, all the things at Radiance Dairy. She was yeah. working there. And so I met her at Radiance Dairy and took a tour. Okay. And then we did my first podcast in this van on that dairy. So it was just very cool full circle because he will be there um, yeah which... you know Francis is a rock star everybody should read his farewell speech when he was on the mm. National Organic Standards Board he gave a speech um, you know he was pretty angry at the USDA 
Um, he worked for the USDA as a soil scientist. He had served on the National Organic Standards Board for five years. He really believed in the process for creating change. And after his five years, he, he said, we need the farmers to step up and save this program. So he was calling for the Real Organic Project. It's interesting at the time he saw it as like a temporary, you know, we need to come together uh, because things are so bad right now and then we can walk away. Um, once we fixed it, and he started to realize that this needs to be like an ongoing movement, um, that the farmers really do need to stay engaged as well as the eaters, because, you know, we really have to keep a close eye on, on where the money's going. Wow. And I, yeah, I will, his farewell speech, is that easy to access? I'm going to link all of these resources that you, yeah. the TED Talk, the just thank you. This has been so enlightening. And just like, you know, I know it's the tip of the iceberg of like really what you do, but I feel so grateful because I, I think so many of us listeners, myself, we, we want to get involved. We want to know, we want to understand, but the walls that exist are so thick and they're thick yeah. for a reason, you know, and so kind of just chipping away. And I just really appreciate all of this information and I cannot wait to either see you in Durango or see you in Monterey. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I hope you'll be there in person. If you need to do the live stream, that's fine. But EcoFarm is a pretty gorgeous beach. It's a fun place to hang out and, and network. So I hope a lot of people show up too. On our, our website is very grassrootsy. You can tell that like we're a bunch of farmers that don't really know technology, but there's so much there. So if you, we have these know your farmer videos, Francis has one of them. If you go under media, you'll see the NOSB farewell. He also wrote a letter to Secretary Vilsack. That's also Francis's work, but he got all of these former NOSB members to sign it, you know, saying we have a real problem here. Um, so yeah, Francis is a hero. That's amazing that you got to know him. He's on our executive board. Oh, that's so great. Well, no, I think what you just said totally discredits. When I was on the website, I was like, this is my content for my next 10 hour road trip. Like I can't wait. <laughs> There's You're a lot there. <laughs> there is. You have your YouTube, you have, I just, it's really, really beautiful. And I'm so grateful that I went to that coffee shop and saw your little pamphlet. So thank you <laughs> for thank all you, you so do. much. <laughs> You're welcome, Lindley. And then yes, let's, um, I'll plan on meeting you in person at the conference. <laughs> it's a deal. Yeah. We'll Yay. convince you to come back to Durango at that point. <laughs> can, it, can it be a little warmer? Maybe when the vegetable time starts. <laughs> it's a particularly cold winter. So oh, it uh, it's, it's usually a nice place to be. <laughs> oh, it's been so beautiful though. Oh, and the final question I had for Durango, just because I'm here, like your favorite um, local, really pushing forward, supportive of farmer businesses. Are there any wow, on top yeah. of mind that you would like to share about? Yes. So one of our best customers is Premi. It's a, it's a restaurant that's got amazing food on main street. Um, I love to say that like the, that one of the cheapest local restaurants is Zia Taqueria and they support local farmers really well. Um, and you know, one of the most expensive restaurants. So it's not this elitist thing. It's like, you don't have to go and drop a hundred dollars or a meal with a friend, um, to, to buy our food. So I would say Zia Taqueria, of course, Eolus is, is really good fine dining. Um, nature's Oasis is the grocery store where you can find our tomatoes and I went there today. Yay. Durango natural food co-op has, um, um, you went to La, La Patisserie. Is that how you pronounce it? That's a new bakery. That's, uh, just, started up that's buying our tomatoes for their quiche james ranch really oh, good food oh they're closed they're, that over winter, they're open they're wednesday through wednesday. sunday yeah okay yep i've missed it the last few days i'll have to come back for that <laughs> oh thank you thank you well i just Do you need a warm place to stay 
You know what? Today is actually the day that I take off West because okay. I got okay. the license in my hand. I'm going to put it on my van and I'm heading to California, but thank oh, you. Okay. If, I, if I come back, I totally will take you up yeah. on that. Good. It's a deal. <laughs> thank you so much, Lindley. This has Thanks, been such Emily. a pleasure and I yeah. will meet you in person soon. Good. Thanks for spreading the word. <laughs> Yay. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. A huge thank you to my sponsors of this podcast, drinklmnt.com slash meatheadhippie for all of your best electrolyte support. I love element salts. Also equipfoods.com slash M for really wonderful post-workout protein. They also have a great collagen as well from grass-fed sources. And myempirica.com, you can use the code meatheadhippie for 15% off, especially if you need a magnesium and we just launched a liquid d3 and k2 in glass bottles that are all in alignment with our no plastic initiative which we are so excited about happy holidays happy new year happy everything take care of yourself love yourself make sure you tell yourself how good of a job you are doing and i'll see you in 2023